Well, good morning again. It's great to see you. Thank you for gathering here this morning, joining us at the the start of this Advent season. Thank you for bringing the church into a YMCA gymnasium. And uh, if I've never had the opportunity to meet you, my name is Jamie. It's my privilege to serve here as one of the pastors at Crosspoint. Before we get into our brand new sermon series, as we uh, explore this theme of Advent, I want to call your attention to a a resource that we put together. So after the service, out in the hallway out there, uh, there's this Advent reading guide. And so I would encourage you uh, to pick up one of these. If you prefer the digital, that'll be available on, online this week uh, as well, uh, but it's a great way to sort of focus your attention, uh, to orient your heart towards King Jesus as we get into this, this anticipation, not only of the, the Christmas season, but as Eric made mention of looking ahead to our King coming back to set everything right. And so just a really helpful resource would encourage you to pick that up, a help even in developing that habit of spending time in God's Word. And so I have the privilege of opening up God's Word with you all this morning, and we are going to be looking at this idea of what this whole Advent season is about. So we'll get into our text here in just a moment, but just to ask this question, because depending on your background or upbringing, some of you might come from church traditions where you're like, yep, we followed the church calendar and I know exactly what Advent means. And some of you are like, I don't actually know what this means. I think it might mean I'm allowed to put my Christmas lights up. I'm not sure, right? And so let me just unpack this a bit and then we'll dive into our text this morning. But as we think about Advent, and Eric made mention of it in the welcome, sometimes it can be viewed as um, the countdown to Christmas, all right? And there's nothing wrong with that. If you got the little calendar and there's little pieces of chocolate in there and maybe you happen to steal the chocolate from your kid. I don't know how that goes in your family, right? But you're doing that sort of thing. And there's yes and amen to all of that, all right? Um, there is a anticipation that's in the air, all right? I mean, we are pro, you know, you put up the Christmas decor, but just know this, Advent is more than just simply the countdown to, to Christmas, all right? In many traditions historically, uh, you wouldn't actually sing Christmas carols or any Christ, kind of the Christmas songs until uh, actually like Christmas Eve, all right? And so some of you are really bummed out. You're like, wait a minute, right? Some of you are like, dude, I started that like Halloween hit and I was into Christmas music, right? I don't know where you are on that that spectrum. So we're not trying to we're not trying to tell you to not do that. All right, we're not going to shame you if you've been listening to Christmas music for months or you put up you know lights this summer. All right, but there is something that gets lost when we just jump right ahead and think of it just sort of as a countdown. We end up missing what Advent was really meant to point us to is this reality that Jesus is coming back. All right, and so even in many traditions, now we, we're not advocating for this, but um, a lot of times too, in, as these Christmas candles and the, or the Advent candles and the wreath and lighting that, historically, just so you know, that wasn't around in the time of Jesus, all right? And then also in the medieval church, um, instead of themes like hope and joy and, and peace and love, all right, the weeks leading up to Christmas were on wrath judgment, heaven, and hell, all right? Um, now, imagine, that's an interesting wreath. Today, we lit the hell candle, all right? Um, like, it, it might not seem quite as festive, but there is something in the truths of those things that are focusing us on, like, contemplating the, the sort of the somber reality of the world that we actually live in. And so Advent is this time to not just skip ahead. It's not just a countdown, and it's not just moving right into, like, all right, we got four or five weeks of just a Christmas celebration. It's a call to consider How's your relationship with the Lord? I love the way that Fleming Rutledge in her book on Advent says this, of all the seasons of the church year, Advent most closely mirrors the daily lives of Christians and of the church. It asks the most important ethical questions, presents the most accurate picture of the human condition, and above all, orients us to the future of the God who will come again. 
And I believe this to be true. So I'm so excited about in this particular series that we get to dive in and not only ask and look at some of the ethical questions, but what is this? Advent invites us to an accurate picture of the human condition. We're going to see that this morning. And so Advent is about the coming of our king. It's the second Advent. It's this, this arrival, all right, that will take place, that we believe Jesus right now is ruling and reigning. He's one day, he's going to come back to set everything right, to put things in their proper order. And there is this feeling, though, that we have of like, Lord, when? Like, when are you going to do that? Is that ever going to happen? There's this longing. There's this anticipation, right? It's like a Michigan fan wondering if they'll ever beat Ohio State in football, right? It's just this, like, is it ever going to happen? That sort of feeling that we have here. And the word of the scriptures is, yes, Jesus is coming back. And so we live in this tension of what he's already done, but what he has not yet fully accomplished, what is yet to be done in the world. And so we're in this tension. That's why I think the Advent season is so beautiful. And it is, if there was one season that really carries out through each and every day of the calendar year, it would be Advent. And so it's not just, though, about what happened in the past with Jesus' birth or looking ahead, but it's also there's some present realities. And so here's what I want to put before you in this series. I hope you will journey with us, that you will be here throughout these Sundays as we look ahead and we, you know, before we gather on December 24th. But I want you to wrestle through this. I think this is important for all of us, is to recognize that Advent is about this inbreaking. It's about this awakening that happens. It's about rightly ordered worship and about God doing something in our lives. And so ask yourself this question. How would you fill in the blank? What is it that's kind of got you in its grip? Something you'd like to be freed of. The Bible uses the, the term, the idea of redemption, that we are slaves to lots of things. We might be slaves to fear, to anxiety. We might be feel enslaved to other people, their expectations. Um, we might feel enslaved. Like we need to be redeemed from just this success mindset that's driving us. We constantly feel like we gotta perform. And the moment we get one of our goals accomplished, it's all of a sudden like, Oh my goodness, the pressure's on because now the bar has been raised and we have to do more. What is it that's holding you in its grip? Might this be a season here where the Lord ministers to you and he meets you where you're at and he begins to loosen, your, loosen the grip on that thing? It's oftentimes the grip that we have on that thing, thinking, I need this. And the Lord says, will you trust me? Will you believe that the, the truth that when you have a heart that's rightly oriented to God the King, that in that moment you start to actually experience the life that he has for you. And so Advent is an invitation to that as well. And so we read this earlier. We're going to be in Isaiah chapter 6. So I'd encourage you to turn there. Uh, if you didn't bring a Bible, there's some paperback ones on the back tables. That can be found on page 635. Or you can make use of the message notes. If you go to cpwp.life, swipe over the second card. Just pull that up on your phone. Anything that's up on the screen this morning, including the text that we will be in, is going to be there. And so for the month of December, we have six services in the month of December. There's five Sundays, plus we have Christmas Eve. So December is a fairly full month. Each of these weeks, we are going to be looking at a selection, a selection out of the, the book of Isaiah, this ancient book in the Old Testament. And where we're going to start this morning is really sort of the commissioning. It's this encounter where we get to learn a little bit about the man by whom the, the, the name of the book is, is named for. Who's the writer? Who's the prophet? It's Isaiah, right? And I believe as we start here, it'll help orient us toward this entire season of Advent. We're going to look at some prophecies of Isaiah in the coming weeks. But here's an opportunity for us to meet this man who has an encounter with the living God and what he experiences 
is this inbreaking, this awakening. He's suddenly beginning to see in whole new ways. The things that had a grip on him, are, he's suddenly freed from. And I think this is a beautiful picture of what the Lord is inviting us into. And so we'll make our way through this text uh, this morning. We gotta start right at the beginning, Act, or Acts. We've been in Acts for a while, you can see that. Uh, Isaiah chapter six, verse one. So let me just read this opening verse here. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Now, we will look at a few of those details more in a moment, but that first part of the verse, verse one, it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, all right? And maybe you're like, yep, I know exactly where Uzziah fit in the history of Judah, of Israel, of God's people, but my guess is you might need a little bit of a refresher course on that. Like, who is this person? So apparently, there's a king that is on his deathbed. There's the earthly king that is dying, and it's in that moment that Isaiah gets a vision. He has an encounter with the true king, the real king, the king of kings and the lord of lords. But this little description here, this is not just sort of a throwaway thing. I think it's meant to sort of orient us, to kind of center us in, like, what was going on historically? And so you had for the... You had for Judah, you had for the southern tribes, you had this, the, God's people, all right? There's these pronouncements, like God's judgment is coming. They have disobeyed the, the Lord. And Uzziah, though, for a long while had been a king. And there'd been a long line of different kings that were evil and didn't seek the Lord. But Uzziah started out really good. And there was this, all this prosperity that was happening. And so I won't turn there, but you can make reference to this. Second Chronicles chapter 26 details this. I'll read a couple verses from it in a moment. But if you were to go and read that, you would begin to kind of get the resume of Uzziah. All right, this man appointed by the Lord, anointed by the Lord, and there is all kinds of success, militarily, economically, spiritually, like things really seem to be flourishing and thriving. And yet... The reason he's on his deathbed is because he's got a worship problem. That he's been a man now that's been afflicted with leprosy. And here's the backstory there. In verses 15 to 16 of 2 Chronicles 26, it says this. In Jerusalem, it says he made machines invented by skillful men. So he's this inventor. He's a brilliant man, very powerful. All right, he's figuring all kinds of ways to continue to, to defend his homeland and to conquer. And he says, all right, so invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and great stones. So he's, he's, he's thinking through things militarily, all right? But then it says this, and his fame spread far for he was marvelously helped till he was strong. He was marvelously helped that the, anything that Uzziah possessed ultimately is because God the Father gave it to him. He was marvelously helped. It says until he was strong. Now being strong is not in and of itself a bad thing unless that strength makes you think that the strength is ultimately in you and not in the giver of all good things. And that is what happened to Uzziah. And it says this, but when he was strong, then what? He grew proud to his destruction for he was unfaithful to the Lord his God and he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. That was a job reserved for the priests. And so Azariah shows up. He says, no, no, what you've done is wrong. He has to send in all these men to rebuke the king. And in that moment, the Lord God says, I have marvelously helped you. Everything that you have, you're not an owner. You're a steward. You have used those things well, but you've grown proud. You've grown complacent. You're not taking matters into your own hands. You're thinking the story's about you. You're forgetting that it's ultimately about God, and God strikes him with leprosy. And until from that moment forward, that is what he deals with. And the one who would have been flourishing and in all these relationships now is suddenly cut off. 
It would have had to have been hidden from the people, this incredibly terrible disease that he has. And it's in that moment, it's in this sort of setting here that we get this detail of Isaiah now. The king is dying. In the year that Uzziah died, now Isaiah is going to see the real king, the real Lord. And so there's something going on here that we have to ask ourselves because the reality is this. You and I have been marvelously helped. It's just flat out true. Like to live in denial of that, for you to think, no, I've made a name for myself. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I've done this. I've accomplished. It's just a lie from the enemy. You have been marvelously helped. Now, that doesn't mean you don't have talents, that you don't work hard, but all of that is a gift. We as a people have been marvelously helped and that should lead us to worship God, to be grateful, to thank him. But instead what it can do is it can lead to pride. It can lead then to this complacency and it can lead ultimately to just this lackluster worship. We've got a worship problem and Advent is this invitation to rightly see, to have our hearts rightly oriented, to repent of our sin, to repent of our complacency. Let me ask you in this Advent season, have you grown complacent? Was there at one time a desire for the things of the Lord and you find yourself just, I don't know, just kind of beat down by the the monotony of life and suddenly that sort of passion, that zeal that you maybe once had for the Lord, it's just, you're just complacent. And maybe you've never even possessed that before, but there's just a, if you're honest, there's a complacency, meaning like, you're just like, is this all there is in this life? Things are even maybe seemingly going well, much like it was for a long time for Uzziah. But unless your heart is oriented in right worship towards your creator, God, to the real king, it isn't going to lead to life. And so have you grown complacent? Advent is an opportunity for us to wrestle with that question. And what it leads to, let's look at these opening then four verses here, kind of the back half of verse one, is God in his grace, there's this collision that happens where Isaiah has this encounter. He has this vision that he is awake and he's starting to see things for the first time. So look at one to four then. It says, so he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple and above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face and with two, he covered his feet and with two, he flew. Just these beautiful yet terrifying creatures surrounding the throne of God. All right, we don't know how many of them there, there are. Right, the book of Revelation would give us some indication this might have been hundreds or thousands of them. So, I mean, it's just this incredible sight to behold. And one called to another. Here's what they are echoing over and over and over again. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. So what happens here in this season, because it's not just Uzziah's issue, the nation there of which Isaiah was a part, there was a complacency, there was just a monotony, there was this worship that wasn't rightly ordered, it wasn't oriented to God, sort of taking matters in their own hands, just kind of doing their own thing. And the Lord in his grace continues to pursue Isaiah, continues to pursue his people, that he's gonna use this man, but it has to start with this collision. You and I need this same collision. We need to encounter God for who he is. Not our conjecture about who he is or the parts of God that we like and we wanna pick this aspect out. We like this part of God, but we don't like this part of it. No, God is he's revealed himself. And so it starts out and it says, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. Isaiah gets this incredible vision of the Lord. 
Maybe a way to think about it is this, and I think this is so true for all of us, is that what happens for Isaiah is he's moving from sort of the concept of God to the reality. He's moving from the concept to the reality of God. I don't think Isaiah would have identified himself in this moment as an unbeliever. He would have said, no, no, no. I believe God, I've been trained in this, I know the scriptures, I know the story of of my people and of how God has been at work, and yet it stayed in the realm of the conceptual. And there's this invitation through this collision, through this encounter to know the reality of God. Don't you want that? We have to see God for who he is. I love the way John Piper talked about this. I've read this quote before, but I think it's just a profound statement. And he says, he talks about the reality as this passage is focused on the glory of God. He says, this is what we need. We need more of the glory of God. He says this, we are all starved for the glory of God. He begins to liken it to the, you know, talk about the Grand Canyon here. He says, we're starved for the glory of God, not self. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem, Right? Now, I've never been to the Grand Canyon, but even the pictures that I've seen are pretty marvelous. And if you've ever been there, you talk to somebody that's been there or something, just some amazing sight to behold. No one usually stands on the rim of that and says, you know what, I'm pretty amazing. It just doesn't happen. There's this overwhelming feeling of like, wow. Just wow. The, the idea of glory, when the scriptures use that, is this idea of weightiness. So like when we have these moments, they're, they're weighty, aren't they? We're like, there's something significant. And even if you're not a follower of Jesus, you might not have the language for it, but you just sort of recognize that. And those moments of glory, whether it be observing something in nature, it might be the, the, you know, something that happens in a relationship, the birth of a child, the way a song moves you, the way a film speaks, I mean, something, and you're just like, whoa, we're in the realm of glory here. It says, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. Indeed, what could be more ludicrous in a vast and glorious universe like this than a human being on the speck that is called earth standing in front of a mirror trying to find significance in his own self-image? It is a great sadness that this is the gospel of the modern world, but it is not the Christian gospel. We are starved for the glory of God. Isaiah and his people and the nation back then was starved for the glory of God. We are starved for the glory of God. I'm starved for the glory of God. The way I have to think about this is like, hey, what's my diet been like? And if I'm honest, I'm oftentimes consuming a steady diet of self. And it's looking inward and it's trying to figure out like who I am in the world and what do people think about me and all of these things. It's like I'm standing in the mirror trying to generate some level of significance and we've missed it. We have to rightly see who God is and in those moments, then we start to see ah, who we are, what we've been put here on the earth to do. We are meant to reflect the glory of God, to point more people, say, did you see how marvelous God is? Like we do that naturally, instinctively about just anything we're excited about. Have you tried this restaurant? Have you been there? Did you see these Christmas lights, right? People start posting on Facebook, like, dude, you gotta get over to this neighborhood because their power bill's crazy if you see these, like, it's this calling. And yet, the most significant thing in the whole world is God. And we need to be rightly oriented to him. Are you consuming a steady diet of self or of the glory of God? Are you beholding his glory? And so it continues. It says, holy, holy, holy. And when the scriptures use that, it's as if it basically is communicating this. Ray Ortland in his commentary says, it's like they're crying out perfection times perfection times perfection. 
Just like we can't wrap our mind around this, we don't have the words to express it, but there is beauty here. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth, the whole world, the whole universe is full of the glory of God. And that commentary, Ray Ortland says these words, and I found this to be incredibly, just this beautiful picture. It's challenging, certainly, but he says, nothing is just ordinary. The whole earth is full of his glory. And he says, we keep trying to fill it with monuments to our own glory. Kingdoms, businesses, hit songs, athletic victories, and other mechanisms of self-salvation. But the truth is better than all that. Created reality is a continuous explosion of the glory of God. This isn't just back then. This is happening now. This continuous explosion of the glory of God. And history is the drama of his grace awakening in us dead sinners, eyes to see and taste to enjoy and courage to obey. I believe this is what the Advent season gets at, to awaken in us dead sinners, eyes that would actually see. What if in this Advent season, your taste buds came alive to actually enjoy what God has for you? That courage welled up in you, not in of yourself, but because you know who God is. You know that you're part of his kingdom. You know that he's the king that's coming back to set everything right. And it suddenly gives you the courage to follow him, to obey him, to find life, to not be running off doing your own thing, but rather to have the courage to trust living according to the way of Jesus, the best possible way to live. And Ortland continues, he says, do you realize that it is God's will to make this earth into an extension of his throne room in heaven? So what we see here in Isaiah 6, the goal of God is to make everything an extension of that experience. Do you realize that it is God's will for his kingdom of glory to come into your life and for his will to be done in you as it is done in heaven? He says, heaven is expanding, spreading in your direction. Like we have to see this. It wasn't just an encounter for Isaiah. Oh, isn't that interesting? But Jesus, the God of the universe, like he's moving toward you. His kingdom is moving towards you. It's spreading in your direction. And that, he says, is the meaning of your existence. If you will accept it and enter in, heaven is taking over. And our response is simply to yield as you're will be done. Lord, it all belongs to you. You're the King of Kings. You're the Lord of Lords. We trust you. What would it look like for us to be a people that would actually embrace us and say, yes, we yield to you as the King. That's what's happening here. Now, in this collision, though, it causes this response that we see in Isaiah. So let's look at verses five to seven for a moment, because it clearly then, anytime you run up against greatness, right, like it exposes something in you. Maybe you've had this experience. Like you thought you were an amazing, you fill in the blank. Like you thought you were super smart because you were number so-and-so in your graduating class and then you went and found out, oh, well, everybody else was valedictorian, right? Or you thought you were pretty good. I remember having this experience like the summer after high school going up to Rollins College to play basketball and some guys that were like semi-pro playing over in Europe, guys that were in college and being like, oh, I thought I was good. I just got lit up, right? Like playing these things, you get exposed. It's like, oh, I thought maybe I was somebody, right? You have these sort of moments. You thought you were an amazing musician until you ran up against somebody. You're like, oh, yeah, I'm just kind of a hack at the guitar, right? Like, whatever it happens to be, and Isaiah has this moment, and we need to have this moment. So five to seven says this. So here's Isaiah's response. He says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Notice, this is so key. Isaiah doesn't just say, 
I'm living in a bad land. I gotta get out of here. God, you're holy. All these other people are wicked. You should do something about that. It's personal. He doesn't deny the reality of what's going on culturally, but he also starts with the log in his own eye. He's like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. If we wanna have an encounter this Advent season with the living God, it has to start with this sort of posture. It's not, I can't believe the world out there. It's like, whoa, what is going on in my heart? What is the Lord wanting to root out? What is he trying to expose in me that needs to be repented of? Verse six, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. So it starts, woe is me. I mean, this language here, this is Isaiah just saying, I am completely coming undone. I am completely unraveling. Woe is me is him pronouncing literally like a judgment upon himself. He understands that in light of who this God is that has just revealed himself to him, that he's awakened to that, he's like, I can't be in the presence of that God. Woe is me, like I deserve to be struck down. I don't deserve to be in a holy God's presence. I've been committing treason against that God, against that king. I've been basically saying, I wanna do my own thing, I wanna go my own way. And the truth of the matter is, it's not just Isaiah that does it, I do that and you do that. And so there needs to be this posture of like, woe is me, I am lost, says, for I'm a man of unclean lips. Do you recognize that Advent is an invitation to recognize our spiritual condition apart from the grace of God? Now, it's not just to stay there. We're gonna see there's some amazing, this is, there's a cleansing, it's a purification, there's, there's this gift that is given to Isaiah. But we're not ready to receive that unless we actually humble ourselves. And this is where this Advent message, this Christmas message really confronts us. I mean, everybody's like, even just culturally, yeah, Christmas and whether they know what it's all about or not, the reality, if we stop and pause for a moment, it's like, yeah, God had to enter in because we were so jacked up and messed up. He had to remedy the situation because we can't do it on our own. We can keep reading self-help books, but you know why they keep publishing more? It's because they don't freaking work, right? Like that's what's happening. That's the reality of the situation. We need God to enter into our story. And until we come to this point of being humbled by the God of the universe, like, woe is me, we're not gonna actually experience what he has for us. And so the question becomes, are you rightly seeing yourself? Do you see your need? Or are you and I too busy distracting ourselves? And man, if there's a season where you can justify busyness, we are smack dab in the middle of it, right? Like we're feeling that right now. I mean, I just, confession, like there's been a lot of good things even happening this weekend, even just in the life of the church, but it's busy right now, right? It's men's event. We're serving here at the Y yesterday. We serviced this morning, a class this afternoon. Like, I don't even know where I'm supposed to be half the time, right? Like, I get that it's busy. And a lot of times they're all really good things. But even in that, we can just keep going and going and going, and we are distracted rather than stopping to contemplate, am I actually devoted to the right things? Am I willing to sort of dig in and do some of the hard work that the Lord is calling me to do? Don't miss this Advent season. It's why we're putting together the resources and things like to just sort of center your heart and your attention and your focus and be like, okay, here's the story that we've been invited into. I came across this poem this week by the poet W.H. Auden, and he wrote this. It's from a poem entitled September 1, 1939. But look at just this, this couple of these lines here. He says, 
Faces along the bar cling to their average day. The lights must never go out and the music must always play. All the conventions conspire to make this fort assume the furniture of home, lest we should see where we are, lost in a haunted wood, children afraid of the night who have never been happy or good. What is he driving at? That there's something about us that we just, we cling to the average day, let's keep the lights on, let's keep the music going, can we just stay distracted long enough? And Advent is this time in the year where we get to stop we get to fight for some reflection and be like, no, 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 no. Like, let's just not keep being distracted. Let's reflect on who we are. Apart from the grace of God, like what would the trajectory of your life and my life be? And now look what happens though. It doesn't end there. It doesn't, it isn't this moment of here's God's glory and then Isaiah's like, woe is me and God's like, yeah, woe is you and I'm out, right? Like it doesn't stop there. And so it says this as it continues, all right? And it's just this unbelievable scene. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, this is verse six, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And it says, and he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. The altar was the place where the sacrifices were made to pay the penalty of sin. It was a way that people could be in right standing before God. Something had to die in your place. This is the idea of substitution or substitutionary atonement. This is a, a theological term that if we don't get this, like we miss the gospel. And so there is this picture that's happening here that's meant to point us ahead to the reality of what Jesus would ultimately do, where he would be the one who would be placed on that altar. He would be the one that is sacrificed for us. I mean, in the scriptures, this is fascinating. Anytime, like you're studying the Old Testament, like if fire in the Old Testament is coming towards you, it's a sign of, of judgment and of wrath. Like you don't want this. So Isaiah in this moment, this burning hot coal, if you don't think it's burning, the seraphim, who sound pretty majestic and amazing, had to use tongs. Like, I don't want to burn my hand, right? Like, he's moving toward him, all right, with tongs, with this hot coal. Fire is coming. Here's what Isaiah had to be thinking that moment. It, I'm done for. This is the fire of God. It's going to burn me up. And yet, cleansing happens. Yet, purification happens. How so? Because the story of God all along, his plan all along, and this is pointing ahead to Jesus, who would have the fire, the wrath, the heat of God, not directed towards you and me as it was rightly, we're rightly deserving of, but instead it was put on Jesus himself, the one who had never sinned, the one who had done no wrong. Jesus comes undone for us. He is literally torn apart for us. He has judgments pronounced upon himself. It's not Jesus being like, woe is me, because he couldn't say that because he didn't do anything to deserve judgment. But there's these woes, these pronouncements, the wrath of God, the heat of God is poured out on him so that you and I could actually live. And that's what's happening here. There's this cleansing that's happening. Paul would talk about this in 2 Corinthians chapter five, and we'll talk about the first part of this verse in just a moment, where he says, so therefore, because he says we're all made new in Christ, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. And then here's the beautiful summation. If you're like, hey, what's a verse I can memorize to just kind of encapsulate, summarizes the beauty of the gospel? I would commend this one to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, just stop there for a moment. In everything that Jesus endured, yes, it was for the Father's glory. Do not lose sight of that. And yet, it's true that for your sake, like 
put your name in there for a moment. For our sake, for your sake and for my sake, he made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. He's perfect, he's spotless. He could actually stand in the presence of God the king. No big deal, he wouldn't be crying out like, woe is me, I'm done. He's not a man of unclean lips. Perfectly pure, perfectly clean, spotless lamb, as the scriptures call him. And all of our sin, our rebellion, our treason against the king, the heat, the wrath, like it's put on him. He knew no sin so that in him, though, it says we might become the righteousness of God. So not only does he get our punishment, we get all of his righteousness. So that you and I could actually be invited into the throne room of, of God to be in God's presence. So that when the king comes back, this is the story of Advent, the king is coming back. And if you have accepted this, if you know this, if you know God is your savior, if you know that Jesus has done this for you, you should long for, you should pray for, you should hope for, you should be excited about him coming back. And if you haven't, you should be terrified because this is the closest to heaven you're going to get. Unless, of course, you've trusted in the finished work of Jesus and then you're like, dude, this place? No, something so much better is gonna happen. And so in the meantime, then, we live with this sense of like, all right, God, you've done some amazing things. We know about Jesus' birth. We know about his life. We know about his death, his resurrection. And we live in this tension, this time where he's, we know he's going to come back. What do we do in the meantime? We'll close with this because part of Advent is embracing our calling the same way Isaiah embraced his calling or his commissioning. So we won't spend a lot of time in this, but let's just look briefly at a couple of things here that we see, because it's, it's a pretty interesting section, and there's more that we could, could do, but just look at, we'll pick it up in verse eight. So then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And then I said, here I am, send me. All right, so that's, just stop there for a moment. That's, that's Isaiah's response. Here I am, send me. Now, I almost picture Isaiah here, like, I don't know if you were this kid, all right, teacher, you're in a classroom, you know, you're growing up, and teacher's like, I need a volunteer, and ooh, me, 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 right? Some of you were that, that kid. Others of you were more calculated. You're like, teacher hasn't given a job description yet. Teacher hasn't told us what we're volunteering for. Like, hey, why don't we just sit back and chill a moment and see? Isaiah might have been wise to do that for a moment, but he's just like, here I am, send me. And it's this sort of heroic move. Like, we read this, right? Like, it's a calling, and we just want to end at verse 8. Here I am, it's this bold move, send me. Lord, I got you. What do you need? And then he gets the job description. So let's keep reading in verse nine. It says this. The Lord's like, okay, go and then say to this people, go speak to this nation that's been in rebellion against God. Say this, keep on hearing, but do not understand. What a weird message, right? Like this invitation, you're getting up, you're basically doing a sermon, you're being like, hey, I want you to keep on hearing, but don't understand this. Wait, what? What do you want? That's what he's supposed to go out and communicate. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. He's supposed to go and declare that. And then it says, verse 10, make the heart of this people dull. You'll see maybe a little footnote, depending on the Bible that you're using. The word dull can also be translated as fat. It's just sort of this fattening up. There's this contentment, right? You're like, oh yeah, this is the Advent season. We're just eating nonstop, right? Like there is this just fattening. I'm just like, man, like I don't got a care in the world. I'm just going to do this. I'm just going to consume this. It's like, make them dull, make them fat. And their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. 
like, wait, wait a minute, don't you want people to do that? And he's like, this is what you're going to go and pronounce. Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, and he basically says, you know what? As you go out and you talk about Jesus, for some, it's always the aroma of Christ, this fragrance. And to some, it's a fragrance of life, and to others, it's a fragrance of death. And our calling is to be faithful, to just talk about Jesus. And God will do what God's going to do. But he's telling Isaiah here, it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. His cultural moment wasn't easy. I think there's a lot to be encouraged in that. It's not to shy away. It's not to say, oh, we'll just stop proclaiming. No, he's like, you go and proclaim. You've been commissioned. You've been called. Like cleansing always leads to commissioning. So if you've been cleansed by Jesus, you've been commissioned. Like there's no way around that. And sometimes it's going to be difficult. So that's, I mean, that's where we get this response here. Verse 11, then I said, how long, O Lord? Maybe he expects things to get better, but it doesn't sound like it. It says, and he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste and the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Like there's gonna be this persecution that's coming. It's gonna be a nation that's gonna invade God's people. The people are gonna be carried off. Like it's historically what ends up happening in that time and that place. But I think it also speaks to this moment that, that we're in. Like, it's going to be difficult. Not everybody's going to believe. And sometimes it's going to look like it's getting worse before it gets better. And it says, though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. I mean, it's this image of like there's been this forest and it's just sort of been leveled. And now there's just like just this stump that remains. And so Isaiah rightly is like, wait, like, okay, I volunteered here. I am send me, but... How, would, how, does, how is he actually going to endure? How are you and I going to endure as faithful witnesses? We've been studying that in the book of Acts this fall. How can we bear witness to the reality of Jesus? And I think in this passage, though, we get some encouragement. So I want to close with this. How can you and I then continue? How can we actually endure? And so as we look back over these verses, what we've seen in Isaiah, how are we going to continue? How are we going to embrace this Advent season? How are we going to bear witness about the, just even the difficulty that, that comes with trying to be a faithful witness for King Jesus? For one, Isaiah was humbled, wasn't he? And I think it's got to start there for us. Like, how can you and I continue? The gospel needs to humble us. God had to die. Jesus had to die for you. Like, that's a very humbling thing to embrace. Wait, I couldn't do it on my own. I couldn't figure this out. I've made a mess, and now he's the one that's got to clean it up. Yeah, so it humbles us. The fact that Jesus, when you embrace it, Jesus had to die for me, it humbles us. It puts us in a spot of like, hey, you're the superior. I've got to listen to you. So for one, we keep going because this is what he's done. But there's this great healing that also takes place in it because it's not just humbling. Isaiah is cleansed. He's purified. He's, he's made right. There's this healing that takes place. So not only for us did Jesus have to die for us, Jesus was glad to die for you. So yeah, he had to die for you, but he was glad to do it. Think about it for a moment. What kind of healing that brings? What kind of motivation to know no matter what you're enduring? Like suddenly you're unflappable, unshakable. I mean, this would have been a difficult calling, right? You might have a difficult calling. There's going to be difficulty in your life. But here, when you come back to that, you've been healed by the God of the universe. You have the righteousness of Christ. Other people might, they might mock you. They might misunderstand you. It might be heated discussion. I don't know how it's going to go. But suddenly, there's something that's anchoring you because I've been healed. I've been cleansed by Jesus. 
And so suddenly now it's like, oh, wow, yeah, storms of life, different circumstances. I don't live and die by those things. I've been healed. So how do we continue? We recognize Jesus had to die for us, but Jesus was glad to die for us for our sake. He pursued the cross to bring you back into the family, that you might have an awakening, that you might rightly see, that you might have an experience of his grace. And then I also think there's this hope, and this, we'll look at this more next week, but did you notice it says the whole field, when it is felled, but the holy seed is its stump. But there's this stump, and it looks like the enemy is one. It looks like there's nothing that even remains, but in that stump there is the seed And when God has been clearing things away, it's so that there's going to be new growth. This goes all the way back to even the curses in Genesis 3 when man first rebelled. But there was this promise that one day from the seed of the woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent, that would deal with death, sin, all of it once and for all. And this stump, it is speaking of the seed. It is speaking of the line out of which Jesus would come. This is what we anticipate with the birth of Christ. This is what we know to be true. This is what we long for Jesus to come back because that seed, that stump, like that resulted in Jesus. And he's coming back to set everything right. And one day there will be a force. We'll look at this later in Isaiah. And the trees will clap their hands. There'll be this rejoicing as the king comes marching in. And we get to be caught up in that beautiful picture, that beautiful reality of where the story is heading. And so there's a hope here. So be humble. No, Jesus had to die for you, yes, but Jesus was glad to die for you. And Jesus is coming back to set everything right. And he invites you into that story. So let me close in prayer. I want to give you a moment to respond. I would encourage you to take some time. What is it the Lord that's bringing conviction? Maybe what's got you in its grip? What do you need to confess? And then take some time just in the quietness where you're sitting in in prayer just to, to celebrate. We'll do that throughout the rest of the service as well, through song. I'll explain some of that more in a moment. But like celebrate the reality of the cleansing that Jesus offers. And then I would ask you, continue. I know it's not easy, but continue. Be faithful. Commit to like, okay, we're going to seek first the kingdom of God. Not to earn anything, but because we've been cleansed, we now get to be his commission called people. So let me pray and give us a moment to quietly reflect. Father, thank you for the great gift that your word is to us. Thank you for your servant, Isaiah, who points us, points ahead to the ultimate servant that is Jesus. And so in this Advent season, Jesus, we pray that we would have an encounter with you, that you would awaken us, that you'd be using our time even together this morning to do just that. We trust that your spirit is at work. We believe that your word is living and active. Um, And God, right now, I would pray that your word wouldn't be hardening hearts, but it would be softening hearts, that people would be open, maybe walked in indifferent towards you, complacent towards you, God, that, that you would begin to stir something. God, I would pray that for all of us. There are parts of our hearts where we are indifferent, we are callous, we are cold to you, to your kingdom. May we repent of that. May you awaken us. Use this Advent season to do just that. And God, I pray in all of it that you would get your glory and then we, that we as your people would experience the great joy that you have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' good name, amen.